So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and surprise, surprise, you're not going to open to Matthew today. You actually will be in Matthew a little bit, but you're actually, if you have your Bible or your iPad or iPhone, you can open and, and uh, reference Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at six, verse 6 through 11. Uh, we will, this week and next week, we'll kind of pause our disciple series through the book of Matthew, and we'll jump back into that after Easter. But this today and next week, we have today being Palm Sunday, and then next Sunday being Easter as we celebrate what's called Passion Week. And this morning, I wanted to take some time uh, to do something that, that really, for me, started about three or four years ago uh, when it comes to Palm Sunday. And, and that is, it's, it's a bit of a change from, I think, what, what we normally kind of perceive Palm Sunday to be. Um, historically, Palm Sunday, that's the day that you come to church, the kids sing a great song. Wasn't that great? The kids did a great job. Uh, somebody comes up with palm branches, because otherwise it's not Palm Sunday without palm branches. So at the opening video, if you were right here on time, there was palm branches in the, in the opening video. So we've got that checklist off. So we're doing all the Palm Sunday things. And then we go to a passage, like we'll be in it in a moment. I'll touch base in, in John chapter 12. But, but that talks about Jesus coming into the city and people going out to the streets and laying down palm branches and crying Hosanna. And it's this big kind of culmination of Jesus is the king and everybody's, you know, crying out for salvation. It's just a beautiful picture. That's all kind of the the Palm Sunday that we understand. But a few years ago, as I was reading through the passages on Palm Sunday and just reflecting on it, it hit me. It hit me what was happening in the passage and what happened 2,000 years ago is that on one Sunday, all these people came out to praise Jesus and to worship him and to honor him and to cry Hosanna. But what they were doing was they were crying out for a Jesus that was different than the one that came into Jerusalem. They were crying out, if you read through the history, the Old Testament tells us different that that's not what Jesus came, but if you read through what was going on there, the majority of Jews that came out to cry Hosanna to Jesus were looking for a political king. They were looking for a Messiah that was not going to save them from their sin, but that was going to save them from the Romans. And when they had heard that, man, this Jesus, he's doing miracles, he's doing incredible things, he, he speaks with authority, he's doing stuff like no one's ever done before, this is the guy, this is the one. He's going to show up to Jerusalem, and he's going to boot the Romans out, and we're going to finally have what we lost all those years ago. We're gonna, he's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth. So they were excited. This is the guy they've been waiting for. This is the one they've been waiting for. The problem is, that's not the Jesus that came into Jerusalem. And they missed it. In fact, what's crazy is on Sunday, Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hosanna, they're worshiping. Anybody recalls what, recall what happens the following Friday? The same people who cried Hosanna were the same people who cried, crucify him. What in the world happened? Wait, this great moment, this, this like high point that the Messiah is here and then suddenly they're, they've turned against him. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit into their box. Jesus didn't fit the customized version of the Messiah that they had come up with. And because of that, for them, he was a disappointment. And as I read through that a number of years ago, I started just to sit back and think, Jesus, have I done that to you? I didn't live 2,000 years ago. I wasn't in Jerusalem crying out Hosanna. But over my lifetime, have I customized you in such a way that you're acceptable to me? That you fit within the box or within the limitations that I placed you in my life, and therefore I can handle you. Because I've got a a grip on you. I understand you, at least in my own mind. And I've created a nice little box that makes it easy for me to embrace you. Or do I need you to come and explode that box? 
We're going to talk about who Jesus is today because I know in my own walk with the Lord, I've discovered that every so often I need a reset. I need to step back and say, okay, am I worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who he said he is? Or have I created him in my own image of what I want him to be? And Palm Sunday is that day because 2,000 years ago, people were mistaken about who Jesus was. You and I need to be careful that we are not mistaken in who Jesus is. And before we get to some different passages, I want to read a pretty good portions of Scripture here because I need you to understand why this is so important for you and I. And this is a little bit different than normal. We're going to, it's more reflecting on, on what our view is of Jesus and how I believe he wants to shift and correct that for us this morning. But I, I want you to feel the weight of why this is so important because we have to go all the way to the end when Jesus returned to understand why you and I understanding who he is clearly, how he defines himself is so important. So in Matthew chapter 25, this is the one portion will be in Matthew. Let me read verse 31 to 46, which describes for you and I, there's two groups of people. One group of people who are convinced they understood who Jesus was, and they missed him. And it was tragic and will be tragic. So in verse 31 of Matthew 25, it says that Jesus in his own words, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. Come and you will, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes or clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. One group of people who recognize Jesus and his work in the world. Another group of people who missed it completely and were shocked when he shows up and they don't have the definition right. Because Jesus tells us that this is going to happen. That there's going to be a group of people that will stand before him convinced they understand who he is, but they've missed it. Because in Matthew chapter 7 as well, another portion of Matthew, verse 21 to 23, which we will get there as we go through Matthew. Jesus says this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are sobering verses. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that there will be a group of people 
who don't really know me but think that they do. But the version that they know me uh, of know of me is not who I really am. And that's why when we read passages like this and we look at Palm Sunday and we look what they did 2,000 years ago, how with less than a week they can go from Hosanna to crucify him, you and I need to take a step and say, okay, do I understand who Jesus is? Now, for some of you think this is really basic and simple, but it's not. It's something that you and I have to do all the time to be reminded of who he is because what's at stake is eternity. The greatest tragedy for you and I is to stand before Jesus someday and say, I know you, and he says, no, you don't. You have a definition of me. You have a box for me. You've customized me, but you don't really know me because you didn't let me define who I was. You defined for yourself who I was supposed to be, just like they did 2,000 years ago. Which brings us to John chapter 12. Let me read. Again, I told you you're going to read lots of scripture, and then we'll get to Philippians chapter 2. But John 12, let me read verse 12 through 19, which is the Palm Sunday passage. It describes what was going on there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him that had been done, uh, these things done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard they had been given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Just, just for a moment, just now, we don't even have a context for Israel or for Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Just think about 2,000 years ago in a city that's not made for this capacity. They estimated because of Passover and the season they were coming into, there was about 2.5 million people crammed into Jerusalem. People everywhere. And just like in the church today was true of Israel back there, <clears throat> back then, the gossip grapevine worked very effectively. That means word of mouth. If somebody said one thing, it spread like fire. So people are talking about Jesus, this miracle worker, this guy who speaks with authority, this guy who's raised a guy from the dead. So everyone's like, there's a frenzy in Jerusalem. And so Jesus comes walking in and everybody's caught up in this frenzy of like, wow, here he is, the one that we've been waiting for. And they're so excited for him. But you and I just for a moment, just think, think about that. So there's this frenzy going on, but what's the frenzy about? We finally get rid of the Romans. We finally stop being this group of exiles, even in our own land, that don't own anything, don't control anything. We finally get to see the reestablishment of David's kingdom. We get to be a part of the kingdom of Israel. And he's here, the ones here, they're so excited. That would be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? Are you guys with me, or is it too warm in here, or what? I'm preaching to myself, or what? I don't know. I would say that would be pretty exciting. He was the answer to everything that they had hoped for. He was All their dreams were wrapped up in him. Everything. He was there. There's this excitement. But it's these same people, as they begin to think about this, they begin to realize, wait a second, as the week goes on, what we call Passion Week, Jesus begins to tweak all of their theology. Tweak is a Hebrew word which means messes it up big time, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But I want you to understand, he did. He, did. he completely exploded what they thought of him. So just for a moment, just think about in, in that week from Palm Sunday to Easter, what unfolds? 
one of the things that scripture tells us is Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns tables and he clears the, the temple out, the courts, because this is supposed to be the temple, the place where you worship God, the place of prayer, and it had become a place of commerce and money-making and dishonesty. So if you're wanting to be a political figure that gets people to follow you, probably shouldn't go in and overturn the most important building in their culture. But that's what Jesus does. He offends everybody as he goes in, and he says, you've missed it. And so, of course, that's not the thing that you and I would want to do. And, and then another thing that he does that any political figure would not do is that over and over again, he keeps telling his followers that he's going to die. When was the last time you heard the president in his campaign speech tell you he's going to die? You don't hear it. Because what does it do? It makes people insecure, uh, not only about what you can do in the future, but they may, may be insecure about your own frame of mind. You keep saying you're going to die. You can't die. And how many times as disciples? No, that's not part of the way it works. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've waited for. You can't die. That doesn't fit into our box. It doesn't fit into our theology. Just be nice, Jesus. Don't die. That's kind of what his disciples were doing because it was concerning them. So he even, during that time, he even, he ends up paying taxes to Caesar. When someone asks him if you're supposed to pay taxes. Now, you don't pay taxes or acknowledge the authority that you're about to overthrow. That's opposite of what you would normally do. You would speak out against it and, and be defiant. But Jesus doesn't do that. There's even in one instance, obviously, where Jesus gathered with his disciples that he takes the role of a servant or a slave and he washes their feet. If you want people to respect you, you don't get down on your hands and knees and wash somebody's feet, which in that day and age was the dirtiest part of their body. That's the opposite. So each one of these things that are occurring, people are looking at this and saying, wait a second, this is, this is supposed to be the Messiah. This is the one that's going to overthrow Rome. This is the one that's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. It's not working for them. And even at one portion, he warns his followers, listen, I'm going to die. And by the way, your life's going to be really unpleasant. You're not going to like this. And then finally, he says, even before everything unfolds on Good Friday and then to the cross and then to then under Easter, he actually tells all of his disciples, and you too, all of you, you'll turn your back on me. All of you. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to run from me. Now, if you and I were running a political campaign, would we do any of that? No, we wouldn't. Your most loyal, trusted followers, you look at them and say, man, you guys are betrayers. You're going to turn your back on me. We wouldn't do that. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Because Jesus didn't come to save the Jews from the Romans. Jesus came to save the world from our sin which is a whole lot bigger. And that's why this morning I wanted to take some time to talk again about who is Jesus. We have to know who he is. We have to have this in a rhythm of trying to be a Christian or be a disciple or follow Jesus. We have to constantly ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus? Do I need an adjustment to my understanding of who he is so I'm making sure that I am following him and not some version of him that I've created in my own mind? So Philippians chapter 2, let me walk through verse 6 through 11, where Paul defines for you and I who Jesus is. So starting in verse 6, the first thing that Paul tells us about Jesus is that he is fully God. Paul says this in verse 6, he says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, Jesus is in the very nature of God. He is God. Now, some people will, in certain religious circles, will try to debate whether Jesus is God or not. If you read through the scriptures, just by simple evidence of looking at the Bible, it's very obvious that Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the universe. He says that. 
In fact, in one of the instances in John chapter 8, Jesus actually says, I am, as in the Old Testament, God said of himself, I am. And people say, oh, he really wasn't saying he was God. Then why in the world did the religious leaders pick up rocks to kill him? Because they were slightly offended by this man saying that he was God. Now, for some of you, like, oh, I get that. He's God. I understand that. But you and I have to remember, if he's God, if Jesus is fully God in human flesh, that means that he is the definition of who God is. You and I can come up with our definition. In fact, in our culture, people, lots of people acknowledge God. They do. Because you and I can make God very ambiguous, very undefined. Almost kind of your own definition will work. That's the way our culture is. And sometimes we do that in the church. So when we reference God, you know, I thank God. Well, who is God? But then when Paul says to you and I, Jesus, the very nature of God, is God, then what happens is the definition of God becomes extremely specific and narrow and pointed. And that means that somewhere down the line, someone has to accept or reject not the concept of God, but Jesus Christ. It's very specific. And that's difficult. Because, you know, I've heard so many times, I think it was, I saw a clip from John Daly was talking about on on his show, on Comedy Central. He was talking about Noah and how the church always reacts when things aren't biblically accurate. And it was actually kind of funny because it is. We get all upset and everything. I don't think God's upset about the movie Noah, by the way. I don't think he's worried about that. But, but so, and he was just talking about how he was talking about God, but then John Daly started referring, well, everybody's okay with Jesus, which I disagree in our culture. This is what I've seen in our culture. People say, you know, I really have a problem with the church, and I don't understand God, but yeah, Jesus, he's pretty cool. He cared about the poor. He was an activist. He was kind of a hippie, you know. Of course, they're looking at pictures of Jesus. We don't even know what he looks like. But, you know, everybody said, yeah, I'm pretty cool with Jesus. The problem with that is the majority of people who acknowledge that, who say, I'm okay with Jesus, haven't read the Gospels. Because if you read through the Gospels and look what Jesus said, I guarantee you're going to have a problem with him. Because what he said was extremely controversial, extremely confrontive. And what it forced people to do is, I have to make a decision. Either I choose to accept him or I choose to reject him. And if he is God, he's the definition of God, then I'm choosing to accept or reject God. And that's why Jesus, in his own words, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father. There's no other way to God. That's why our culture, oh, Christians are too narrow-minded. No, Jesus was narrow-minded. He was. The issue is not Christians. The issue is, who do you say Jesus is? If he's not God, then you've rejected him. And some of you think, oh, I get that. I understand that. But that's something we have to constantly come back to. Because that is always something that seems to be up to de- for debate. Even with when, within different kind of veins of Christianity, people will go, well, yeah, he was a God, or maybe he was just man. But no, Paul's saying, no, he was in the nature of God. He was God. And the second thing, verse 7, Paul says that he was fully human. This is what's crazy. It's called the incarnation. Don't try to figure it out. You, do, you and I just have to accept it. Paul goes on, he says, And he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He's the nature of God, he's in human likeness, he's fully God, he's fully man, and that's what's absolutely crazy. God does things, Jesus made the decision to do things that if you and I were in his position, we would never do. When you create something, and you are the author of life, and you have always existed, and you have never been bound by time, why in the world would you want to become a part of your creation? I had a, a, a professor one time, we were in, in talking about 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it says that, that Jesus, you know, for the benefit of us, 
so that we could become rich, he became poor. And what it's talking about is that he was willing to step out of heaven, choose to limit himself in the body of a human being, and, and become, in a sense, poor so that you and I could inherit the riches of heaven and being in God's presence forever. It's crazy. And as he was talking about this, he said this phrase that I'll never forget. He said, just imagine that the God of the universe, who has no limitations, none, no limits of time or space or ability, has no limitations, makes a choice in one moment to limit himself inside the body of a baby in Mary's womb. Just think about that. Anybody claustrophobic? I think you'd have a huge issue from going to no limitations to saying, no, I'll take on the limitations of humanity so that I can be with humanity. I can be a part of the creation. That's crazy. Because what it means is God loves us so much that Jesus made a choice to become one of us, to fully experience what it means to be human. So many times people say, oh, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. Oh, yes, he does. Fully. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to be hurt. He knows what it is to be tired. All those things. He knows all of the human condition because he was fully human. And that's why when you read in John, when Jesus comes on the scene, probably one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture is the shortest verse in all of Scripture. And it's two words. It's Jesus wept. And the context for that is when Jesus, remember, fully God but fully human, comes on the scene where Lazarus, his friend, has died. He's in the tomb. He sees Lazarus' sisters. They're in mourning, and the Jews are all crying. And there's this, it's this morbid, horrible scene. They've lost a friend. And Jesus knows in just the next few moments, what is he going to do? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But what does it say Jesus did in that moment? He wept. Why would he weep? Because he felt the pain of humanity. And also in his capacity to be God, he understood this is not the way it's supposed to be. See, sin entered the equation way before when Adam and Eve decided to do it their own way and then everybody else after them. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. When God created Adam and Eve, death wasn't supposed to be part of the deal. But because of sin, death enters in. So can you imagine being fully God, being fully man, and you walk onto this scene and say, I have the power to change this, but it's not supposed to be this way. And your heart breaks because you see the pain of humanity in front of you. That's what Jesus chose. He's fully God. He's fully man because he can appreciate both sides. He has all that ability in him. Which leads to the third thing. Look at verse 8. Paul goes on to say that he is our sacrifice. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Any good political figure doesn't die for his followers. He stays alive and outlives his followers, right? Not Jesus. Because he loves you and I so much, he chose death. Because he knew that's what it was required. Now let's just, for a moment, think about what this means. So Jesus chose to become human. Then he chose to submit himself to the worst death possible. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time, which was just the right time that God had planned for him to enter into our existence, become human. He's God. He could pick any time. In fact, if I were him, I probably would have picked now because, you know, the whole debate on the uh, death penalty that even lethal injection is considered inhumane. So this, this would probably be a better time to come if you're going to get executed because they can't even figure out if putting you to sleep with an IV in your arm is good or bad. Jesus came during the Roman Empire and crucifixion was the worst possible way a human being could die. There is no worse way. And the reason it's true is because it was designed not just to 
allow death to come, but it was designed to humiliate, to torture. It was designed to make you feel not only the physical pain of death and suffering, but to experience the emotional weight of being completely helpless and isolated. That's why it was done in public fashion. It wasn't done behind closed doors with just a few people gathered around. It was done in front of everyone so that you hung on a cross and intentionally bound your arms, your hands, and your feet with a nail so that you could not help yourself. Nothing you could do could stop it. And then can you imagine, far beyond, I mean, the physical pain that Jesus went through, I mean, watch the Passion of the Christ. It gives you a glimpse of what Jesus went through. I mean, that is horrific. But then think about this. Can you imagine, if you're, you're on a cross and you look down and you see those who loved you, you see your family. Jesus is looking at his mom. And they can do nothing. They can't stop his pain. They can't stop his suffering. They can't pull him off the cross. He's hanging there, humiliated, literally almost naked in front of everyone. Jesus chose that because he loved us so much. He knew that our sin earned that kind of death, and he said, I'll take it on myself. But you know what else he says? He doesn't call you and I to crawl, crawl up on the cross and be crucified. But you know what he does call us to do? He calls us to die. You think, oh, wait, Jesus died. I'm good. He paid for my sin. I'm fine. He did it once for all. It's all good. But then when he calls you and I to follow him, you know what he says? You have to be willing to die too. Listen to what he says in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow, or daily follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Wait a second. Wait, no, he's the one that's supposed to die. I'm not supposed to die. He dies, I get to live. But you and I, you and I have to understand the way to life always comes through death. See, you and I don't get to Easter unless we go through Good Friday which is part of the, the challenge that sometimes we create with Easter. Easter's like the Super Bowl for the church, right? Invite your friends. Let's pack it out. Let's have Krispy Kreme donuts. Let's do it big. Let's have a great thing. But wait a second. What about Good Friday? So normally in the in past, we've had a service. Nothing wrong with a, a, a Good Friday service. But this year, we're opening the sanctuaries mentioned for, mentioned for six hours for any time during that period to come and do what? To reflect to take time out of your schedule, to pause and think what happened 2,000 years ago, what Jesus was willing to do for me, just to pause. See, you and I can't get to life unless we die. Death always comes before life. You and I always thought life came first. No, Jesus reversed it. Life comes after death. But you and I have to be willing to die. That means every single day of my life. I have to get up in the morning and I have to think about my selfish desires for the day and be willing to put them to rest. Being willing to die to myself. I know myself. I like to keep resurrecting myself. And Jesus says, no, you need to die again. You, that part of your life needs to die. Anybody feel like that? You ever look at yourself and think, man, if I could just kill this thing off, I'd be happy. But it keeps coming back. Why? Because our selfishness inside of us, it drives us, it controls us. And every day we're supposed to lay that down. Why? So that we can truly live. What Jesus is saying is you can hang on to this life, the life you think you have, but this life is killing you. But if you let this one die, I will resurrect the life that you're supposed to have. But it comes through death. That means you and I have to be willing to sacrifice everything, put it all out on the table. 
in our community group right now, we're reading through Radical together. And our kids, we've been reading through Radical together with them. And in the first chapter, David Platt talks about how he and his wife lost, lost everything in Katrina, in New Orleans. In fact, they were at a shelter and they watched the news and then they saw the roof of their house with water up to the top. And he said, God got their attention because he said to them, this is what I've called you to do. If you're going to follow me, you have to put everything in the floodplain. Everything goes out there. Nothing. Nothing gets held back. And then let the, the floodwaters come. And then what's left? That's what you get. That's what's left. That's what's still standing. That's what's part of the life that God has for the future. And that's the question I have to come to every single day. Am I willing to put it in the floodplain? Am I willing to lay it out there and let God wash it away so that what can remain is what's true life, what's truly living? So it leads to fourth thing. That he has, trust me, it doesn't get any easier. You could probably say, okay, you're done now. We can go. But look at verse 9, because then Paul tells us that he has all authority. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name. He exalted him to the highest place. So this is a reference to Jesus' death, his resurrection. He's exalted. He has authority over everything. Why? Because he died and he rose from the dead. He's the one and the only one who has the power over sin and death. He has all authority. And because of that, if he truly has all authority, then there can never be another authority in our life that is higher than him. And that's the daily battle that we face. When push comes to shove, what wins? What wins in our life? Is it his kingdom and his righteousness and his purpose, which we talked about a few weeks ago? Or is it my agenda, my career, my money, all the things I want to do, my hopes, my dreams, everything I've mapped my life out to be? Is that what wins every day? Or do we let that die and let God resurrect what we really should be dreaming about? What our right life really should be defined by? If he has all that authority, that means that I am called to obey him which means when he says something, it's not optional. I can't find out a way around it. I can't justify a different way. I have to say, yes, you've called me to do that. You've called me to be obedient. Because at the end of the day, you and I have to be faced with what wins every day. What wins in our life? What wins out? Because you and I have those tension moments where we're faced with, am I going to do what I want in my own selfishness that's good for me? Or I know what God's saying, I need to lay down. What am I going to do? We have those almost every day. That's a tension we live in. And at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, what won today? Because if you and I think that we've won, that maybe we've really lost. And we haven't gained what God wants us to have. That's why when I read through the Gospels and I read through the book of Acts, I want what they had. They didn't have the life that I have right now, and that concerns me. They had a passion that didn't care about this life. They cared about God's purpose. And because of that, they lived crazy, amazing, miracle-filled lives. That someday they're all going to stand before Jesus, when you, and they're going to be the ones where he looks down and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you surrendered everything. You gave it all. You knew who I really was, and it caused you to be obedient to me. And then the final point, look at verses 10 and 11, and the worship team will join us again. We'll conclude our time with focusing on Jesus and worship. Is that ultimately, he is the Lord over everything. Paul goes on, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I've been in the church for a while and grew up in the church, and I've heard that verse so many times, and I've read it so many times. And you know how we normally interpret that verse? This is how we interpret it. We always apply it to everybody else. 
And this is how we, we think it. This is almost how the way we quote it. Someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether you want to or not, that Jesus is Lord for all you sinners and pagans. That's the way we come across. We do. Let's be honest. It's the verse that applies to everybody else. And, you know, it's all of our enemies that someday, you know, you're going to have to form those words, Jesus is Lord, even though you don't want to, and then you're going to die and go to hell. That's kind of the way we feel. That's the way I've always heard that verse portrayed. That is the wrong interpretation. You and I have to understand that verse applies to us personally before it applies to anybody else. Someday you and I, we will have to bow down. And we, there may be some people, when that moment comes, when we have to bend our knee and we have to confess, what we are confessing to is, oh my goodness, I got the wrong Jesus. Because the one that just showed up, just like 2,000 years ago over the Passion Week, is not the one I thought that I was following and worshiping. And it's going to be difficult to confess he is Lord because it's going to mean, oh man, I missed it. I didn't, I defined him on my own and didn't let him define himself. But to understand that he is Lord. Is he the Lord over my life? Is he the one that has ultimate authority? Or do you and I long for that day when we will willingly bow our knee and we will willingly confess? And when we confess Jesus is Lord, it will be with a smile and a confidence because we know that we've given everything that we have to follow him and we've let him define himself over our lifetime so that when we see him someday, we won't go, oh no, who is he? We'll go, that's the Jesus that I've followed my whole life. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that the Holy Spirit defined for me. That's the Jesus that I know. And he's the one that knows me. Therefore, when I stand before him, he won't say, depart from me for I never knew you. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why Palm Sunday is so important. In fact, Palm Sunday is almost as important as Easter. Because you and I cannot repeat the mistake that was made 2,000 years ago within a week's time thousands of people turned their back on Jesus because he didn't fit in their box. He didn't fit because they had customized him to make something of what they wanted, not what who he really was. And so today you and I have to reflect and think, especially as we walk through this week, I want to choose to follow Jesus, but I want to make sure I'm, right, I'm following the right Jesus. That I'm not following a Jesus that I tell him which way he goes and how far he goes and when he goes, but I follow Jesus that tells me what my life's supposed to look like and what I'm supposed to do as I choose to follow him. Remember the big picture. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came because you and I are separated from God, and the reason Jesus came is through his death on the cross to take the sin of our sin off of ourselves onto him so that we could be reconciled back to God. That's what he's wanting. He's trying to draw people back through Jesus. God is to himself so that someday we can be in his presence forever in reconciliation. Back to what was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve with no sin, with no shame, with no guilt, face to face with God. That's what Jesus is in the process of restoring. But to get there means you and I have to follow him the way he leads and follow him the way he defines himself. Let's go ahead and close our eyes. Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for your spirit in us who challenges what we think and how we understand you. And Lord, even today as we looked at the scriptures, we're not, we're not creating a new you. We're just getting back to who you really are. And so I had asked in each one of us today that whatever portion of our understanding of you that has been less than who you are 
or has somehow defined you within a limitation that you never defined for yourself or has made you more acceptable to us. I ask that today that you would begin to erase those lines that we've placed around you because Lord Jesus, I know, I know that when we truly know who you are, who you are is far better than any version that we can come up with on our own. Any customization that we can do of you always falls short of who you really are and we want to know who you are, not who we think you're supposed to be. Lord Jesus, we want to be the kind of people that on one day we can cry Hosanna and not end the week crying crucify you. But that throughout our lives we can say thank you. We can say thank you for saving us from our our sin. Thank you for loving us and becoming human. Thank you for sacrificing yourself. And I'm just going to pause just with your eyes closed just to give an opportunity for maybe one or two or three, I don't know how many that might you might be here and you're, maybe for the first time in your life, you're starting to get a clear picture of who Jesus is and how much he loves you that he was willing to become human. I don't know what your definition has been of him, but today you're starting to get a clear picture of who he is. And because of that, you know deep down inside of you, there's something that draws you to him and draws you away from the life that you've lived up until this point. Because what you desire is you desire to be free from your failure and your sin. You desire to truly be alive in what God can do in you. And you're feeling that stir inside you. What you're sensing is God's calling you to turn your life, turn away from the life that you used to live. And turn towards him and choosing to follow him confessing the the brokenness and the failed attempts of trying to make life what it's supposed to be in the past to embrace the dying process of being resurrected into what God created you to be. And if that's what you're desiring today, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. We call it prayer, but what it is, it's talking to God. It's talking to Jesus. I'm going to ask you right now that you would just begin to tell him. Just right now, you begin to tell him, I desire to truly know you. I desire to follow you. I desire to put everything out in the floodplain and let it wash away so that what remains is what truly life is supposed to be about and who you really are. You just begin to tell him, that's what I desire. I want to surrender my life to you. Because in that moment, he will allow his forgiveness to cover your sin, to make you whole, to bring forgiveness so that you can be someone who follows him and live with confidence that someday when you stand before him, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, as you enter into God's presence for eternity. Lord Jesus, would you seal that in all of our hearts today, no matter where we find ourselves in understanding of who you are, that we would have that clear picture. And even in these next few moments as we worship, Lord, let something break loose in our hearts. Let us release the definitions that we've given of you and let let what emerges is who you really are. Let us encounter you as we give ourselves to you and worship in these next few moments. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.